2: Shifters Radio, I'm Tim Hayes, I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the reality management worksheet, it contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon and Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives as they apply these tools actively in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials, and if you have any of those to share with us, we'd appreciate if you did that and give us a call at 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And we greatly appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. Our intention with this work is to be a service, and when you let us know how these conversations and the worksheets that we do online, uh, on the Internet show, when how they land for you, how it's working, how it's helping, or where you're getting stuck, it makes it far easier for us to be of assistance and to be of service. So, how can we be of service? 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1 on your phone and we can have a conversation. Alternatively, if you're listening in the archives or you just don't want to call in live, you can send us an email at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at Yagain.org. That's W H Y. A-G, A-I-N dot O-R-G, and we'll address your comment or question or answer or testimonial on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time your comment was addressed, and you can listen back in the archives for the feedback. So... Do us all a favor and let us know how we can be of more service to you. What would be most useful to you for the way to spend today or comments or questions you have about what you've heard in the show the past few days. This is a Wednesday. We had a support group last night. It was um, another group where we were listening to... um, Tara Brock, who is a Buddhist teacher, and she was trying to uh she wasn't trying to, she gave a talk about the benefits of self love, getting getting to perfect your love of self, your a recognition of yourself as a loving source. And um she gave some exercises and it was quite challenging for several of our members because truth be told most of the people raised in this western hemisphere in these cultures have difficulties with self-acceptance and healthy self-acceptance and healthy self-esteem and so some of the thoughts she presented, some of the questions that she suggested, some of the exercises that she offered were very challenging for people who are um, experiencing a lot of self-loathing thoughts and or maybe just negative thoughts. And the understanding is that If we practice things, like Dr. Michael Rice in his work would talk about practicing a love exchange. And the love exchange is a situation where two people choose to partner up, or you can do this with yourself in the mirror. And if the two people partner up, one decides to be the sender and one decides to be the receiver, and they take turns sending as loving a set of thoughts and energies and emotions from themselves through their eyes toward their partner and their partner sitting very close, right there next to them or in front of them, spend some time just noticing with attention put to their face and to their hand and to their sense of the energies coming from their other partner, they spend some time Just being aware of what this energy might feel like, what it might be experienced as, this energy of love, these loving thoughts, these loving emotions coming at them from their partner. And, of course, an individual can do this with themselves in the mirror. Tap into the most loving, happy, safe, comfortable memories you have, Strengthen them, bring it up as though you're reliving that very experience in this moment. And then envision sending it out either to your partner or to your image of yourself in the mirror as though you were shooting water out of your eyes. This energy of acceptance, compassion, joy, love, cherishing, appreciation, whatever you want to call it. And that practicing doing that builds muscle memory within us, builds um, neural pathways that the longer they're practiced, the stronger they get, the larger they get, the easier it is to do it again the next time. And Michael Rice has talked about that for decades now with you know practicing the idea of, doing a love exchange with your partner and or with yourself in the mirror several times a day for the rest of eternity is the way michael would usually say it in an intensive and the benefit of that is exactly what tara brock was trying to tap into in her talk last night where she kept talking about how the more you practice saying you're valuable I have love for you, I'm extending love to you, I appreciate you, you deserve to be happy. Whatever you can say to yourself in these exercises, the more you practice it, the more benefit you get. The more it will stir up the parts of you that want to argue against it, and then you can use other techniques like the reality management worksheet or the EFT tapping to dismantle the false negative conclusions. And if they're negative, they're false. You don't have to wonder if they're false. They'll they'll be false when they're negative or when they leave you feeling negative. And you can actively apply tools, whether it's Byron Katie's worksheet process and questioning or Diedrich Wolzak's worksheet process or Michael Rice's worksheet process or some of the exercises that Guy Finley would lay out for you. You can practice these tools and dismantle the false beliefs, the negative energies, the trauma energies that each and every one of us carry around with us. And if you practice saying, loving, or in in the Tara Brock talk last night, she was calling it these meta, M-E-T-A, meta thoughts, I am love, I am valuable, I deserve to be happy, etc., The more you practice them, the more they will get strengthened and the more the negative thoughts within you, negative conclusions within you that want to fight against it will get stirred up so you can have ready access to them to dismantle them. And that's what we're here to support people in doing. Recognizing how many of these deep spiritual teachings are built on the observation that You are this energy of creation. You are love expressing in form. You have tremendous value simply because you have consciousness. You don't have value because you did X, Y, or Z thing the right way. And... That's also the foundation of the work that we're talking about here on MindShifters Radio and in the Mind Shifter support groups, that the more comfortable we get staying directly, consciously aware of our true nature as love, the better our lives get. And I frequently talk about this two-prong approach, where one thing is, the one prong is, I practice doing the love exchange with myself in the mirror, or doing these meta-practices that Tara Brock was talking about last night, or doing a, um, a visualization of myself as the energy of creation expressing in form. And that's one prong of the approach, reminding myself of my true nature as, as love, as, as the essence of creative energy flowing into the physical. And the second part of the approach is that every time I become aware of something tight or tense or negative or angry or any other negative emotion I might experience, I pick up a tool, I take a softening breath to turn the focus inside myself, and I apply that tool to the process inside my mind-body energy system that is giving rise to this tension or negative emotion or upset. And that two-pronged approach has served me extraordinarily well over the last more than 18 years now. And we recommend it. We recommend it so highly. We've made the commitment to um, have some space available and make the offer every Five days a week on the Mind Shifters radio show during the uh, first half of the show, two-hour show, that uh, we'll make the offer. Does anybody want to do a worksheet? Does anybody need some help framing out a worksheet, understanding how I would uh, describe a worksheet in this situation or that situation? and when that isn't available i will endeavor to do a worksheet on my own situation and model the the process we haven't done one in a few days here so the last time i did the last couple times i did it i used the app on the phone as um the process however um Dr. Michael Rice, in his um, most recent set of work around this, has decided to create what he calls a, a shorter seven-step worksheet. Maybe he doesn't call it shorter, but it, it has a few, it has some fewer pages or some fewer words on the page. And so I will start with this. I don't really know what to call it, but it was uh, published in this year, 2023. So within the past few months, he has – past two months, he has put this out In the bottom it says version V-01 slash 2023-1. And so um, it's the newest release where a number of uh, exercises, thoughts, releases that used to be in the right-hand column have just been eliminated. And so there are fewer words on the page. A little bit bigger font for some of the words, and the worksheet process. As I talk about it to people, I encourage them to read every work, every word on the worksheet, every time they do it, because this is a way to reprogram your mind. to to undo some of the very powerful conditioning of our culture, which has me believe that people and things outside of me are responsible for my negative emotional states or my reactions. So what this worksheet says is that reality is a construct of my mind. It's my unique perception of the world, and the world is in quotes, because the world I perceive is my own creation. And Michael uses the word reality to signify the pictures my mind creates. So there can be my reality and a a different reality for every other human being on the planet. And then he uses the word actuality to talk about what is there without judgment, without interpretation. And he talks about how Forgiveness is a tool for waking up from and changing my reality. Why would I want to change my reality? Anytime I construct a reality that has me feeling a negative emotion, I, I could want to change it, restructure it, wake up from it, understand it as false. So the premise in this work is that my true nature, my essential nature my human life my very being is this energy of love energy of creation and if you don't know what that feels like i recommend that you hold a newborn child or you remember a time remember a time when you either held a newborn child or you held a new newborn puppy or kitten or had a wonderful walk in nature and and, and felt like you know you were connected to all of life so just tap into that and take a breath. And then the worksheet goes on and says, the goal of this initial internal forgiveness wake-up sheet is to empower me to remove fear and or hostility and return me to the direct experience of my true nature as love and to try and stay in that awareness 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long. So for this worksheet... It'll be Tim who's doing it. And the worksheet in step one says, I, Tim, who am love, I am experiencing, and we'll put fear as the emotion because I did some work earlier in the day and fear was up several times. And the worksheet... Then says, so I have I, Tim, in 1A, and then I, and 1B, I'm experiencing the emotion of fear. And the worksheet encourages me to use a separate worksheet for each emotion, and it tells me that my denial places my experience of myself as love, as this essence of creative energy expressing in form. And I'm not aware of that in the moment, my mind tells me that my emotions are caused by my trigger. And in in this case I'm going to put my leg and my perception, my story is that it is sore and damaged or injured, sore and injured. And then the worksheet reminds me to breathe and soften. And there's a reminder in this worksheet that says, if I'm in pain, my thinking is in error. So if I'm generating fear, my thoughts are off the mark. And so I have now 1A is Tim, 1B is fear, 1C is my leg, and what's happening with my leg is it's sore and injured, And one D is, it reads, the truth is only my thoughts cause my emotional upset. And the thought, and I use a separate worksheet for each thought because the thought will be connected to a different emotion. And the thought is that, the thought I'm using to generate fear is that this pain and and immobility will continue this pain and lack of mobility will continue so I'm writing that in on the 1D and I don't have any punishment thought that I'm aware of for myself, as in um, generating self-loathing thoughts or whatever, but I'm going to put here just generating fear. So if I pour energy into fear, that's kind of a punishment for me. Step two asks me to be willing to process and face and process out all dis-ease as I go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. And I'm willing to do that understanding that I may have more physical pain or low energy. I may have mental upset. I may have negative thoughts come to mind and or confusion. I may have any negative emotion I've ever had in the past and depression. And rather than run away from those, this worksheet wants me to be willing to face it and process it out. So step three asks me to list my desire, the constructive result, the exact goal that's driving my pain perception and leading to the fear is what I want my leg to be strong, healthy, and flexible. I'm gonna put healthy, flexible, and comfortable. So I write that in there. Put a check mark, take a breath, and soften. Step four says, I choose my essence as love, and when I do, it stirs the love in everyone involved. And it reminds me of the rose and the butterfly story. Essentially, you know, the rose and the butterfly, they both have an ego, they fall madly in love, and they're doing wonderfully until one day the butterfly, true to its nature, picks up and flies away. The rose, mistaking the love of the butterfly as more important than its true nature, it uproots itself to chase after the butterfly and it dies. It dies because it made something more important, something else more important than staying connected to its true nature as love. In this worksheet, my, my premise is that my true nature is love, that my goal is to stay consciously aware of that. All day, every day. So when I use my mind energy to generate fear, I'm disconnecting myself consciously. I'm disconnecting myself from my experience of myself as love. I can't ever be disconnected from my true nature, but I can be in the dream of separation. I can have a hallucination that I'm not connected to love. So in step four, I like to stop and do a little meditation and breathe and soften and think of some of the most loving people in my life and the energy that moves in my heart space when I breathe and soften into interacting with those people, and I do that here gently until I actually feel a shift away from the fear into the love, into the joy, into the strength, into the contentment, fairly easy to do this time for me. So now I move on to step five. Step five tells me that when I'm upset, my perception, my mind's construct, is built out of corrupt data, and it's driven by my goal in number three. In this case, my goal for my leg to be strong, healthy, flexible, and comfortable. And when I cancel that goal, the driver that sets the data that produces my reality then my errant perception collapses and I get to drop into the parts of my mind that are hidden from me by the pretense that others are responsible for what I have created. Again, if they are the one with the problem, why am I the one with the pain? So here's an action step recommended in step five. While holding love, conscious, active, and present, the word for that in the ancient Aramaic was have the filter of Rachma set in my mind, I now choose to use my mind, collapse my mind's lies by willingly canceling my goal for my leg to stay, to be strong, healthy, flexible, and comfortable. And then... Step 5B says, I invite some source other than my conscious logical mind. In this case, I choose ruka, ruka de kucha, the ancient Aramaic word for an elemental force like the breath or the wind or gravity itself that's implanted in every one of us that's there to break off the effects of our errors in thought and guide us to truth and happiness if we just ask it to. So I'm going to invite ruka to incline me toward healing to restore me to my newborn awareness of love, to heal my denial, and to heal my capacity to generate the emotion of fear in this case. And I breathe and soften with each of those boxes and check marks. And when I do that, I'm asking Ruka to help me open a direct conscious relationship with and gently remove any parts of my mind that have been denied and dissociated and then I just want to do I'm reading 5C here on this worksheet it says I cancel my need to be right I cancel my need to make up another story out of my hidden corrupt data to hallucinate proof that my fear and hostility based story my reality is true and I breathe and soften And I take it to the next level and put my hand over my heart space and close my eyes and I gently go through the mantra of the forgiveness pattern or pattern, which says I cancel my need to be right. I cancel my need for anyone or anything to change, including myself. I put my conscious logical mind on the shelf for now. I specifically cancel my goal in this worksheet. And I ask to be shown the hidden part of my own mind that's actually creating this upset. And then I just breathe and soften and put myself in the most open, allowing, and curious space I can find. And I just trust that anything that comes to mind is part of what I need to see to begin to heal here and move forward. As I cancel my need for my leg to stay healthy and flexible and comfortable and strong, I cancel my thought that it's going to continue. I release the emotion of fear. I release my need to be right. And I ask to be shown the hidden part of my own mind that's actually generating fear here. And I stay with that until I get a connection. I feel a shift in energy I see a memory from the past that might be traumatic, but I just breathe and soften and ask to be shown. I say breathe and soften, ask to be shown. I click on a memory from being about eight years old. And I now feel what I'll say is sadness. And I remember in school priests and nuns, priests and nuns angry. And the memory is that I was. You know, in this Catholic school, and I was being taught about how God is love and how that would conflict with if you do anything wrong, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity, and how God is beyond our knowing, but then God wants you to do this and that, and I would point out these contradictions to these teachings at eight years old, and I would get punished for it. So I have no idea what that's how that might be connected to my leg and leg pain but i just trust the process that 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 energy that thought came up and i move on to number 7 number 7 reads that a principle of the universe is that by giving i first get the original so i connect with love i choose truth and i choose perfect love and for myself and my leg from based on this i'm offering to do, um, the goal I'm going to set is to do two more worksheets on the sadness that came up and the memory of the priests and nuns being angry, and to breathe and soften through that to see if these associations can reveal even more energy that I can release, And then the last part of this worksheet process says, I commit to love, to living a human life, and to help achieve this, I do a mass canceling of all the times I've wanted this goal for someone or something to be strong, healthy, flexible, and comfortable. And I'm putting my initials there and my father's initials there. And leaving it open for the universe or Ruka to show me more situations where I might hold the goal for something to be different than it is and generate a negative emotion. Rather than staying consciously connected to my true nature as love and feeling the joy and appreciation that is possible when I just recognize the gift of life flowing through me and I appreciate it. So that's the worksheet that I'm offering for today. And we have some time for comments or questions. 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. How does it strike you to listen to yet another worksheet process? Were there any questions you have about this new somewhat shorter worksheet process that Michael revealed in the past two months. You know, one of the core benefits for me in this work, as I've pointed out time and again, is that the more I do this work, the more I take more of my mind energy at the beginning of each day and tell myself, I want to be alerted by my own awareness, at the earliest possible warning sign of upset or tension or negative emotion. And the more I do that, a whole series of good things happen in my life. The biggest that I can say with great clarity is that I spend the tiniest fraction of time in my life today it, sitting in or experiencing the negative emotions. And I I spend less time in it because as soon as I realize that's what's happening with me, I use these tools. I breathe and I soften. I turn the focus inside. And when we do um, a support group process, And we have somebody that starts to, um, uh, you might say, go on a rant or express upset about a particular dynamic in their life or in the world at large. Um, it's, It's routine for me or somebody else in the group to point out, this might be a good thing for this person, whoever's upset about it, to do a worksheet on. Because while the actual dynamic might be occurring in life, that actual dynamic is not what's creating the upset the person is experiencing. And yet, our culture, the training of our minds tells us, yes, I'm upset because of this or that dynamic. And the, the benefit to me in this work comes when I refuse to buy into that belief that leaves me feeling something negative and I I freely, quickly, easily, early on in the process um, pick up a tool and apply it to the process that my own mind is using to create upset. You know, we've had on on a regular basis um every one of us experiences a negative emotion probably multiple times a day if we're if we're honest about it and yet despite how well practiced our minds are at telling us that it knows my mind knows why I'm upset and it's x y or z dynamic outside of me and it's A, B, or C person in front of me, doing or not doing something that I want them or don't want them to do. Despite that, what we observe over and over again in this work is that's never been the cause of my upset. How do we observe that? Because when we apply a tool like the Reality Management Worksheet or the EFT tapping, and my energy shifts and I shift away from the original emotion, even though nothing outside of me has changed. I had somebody in my office earlier today, and we were doing a process very similar to the reality management worksheet. And when she started, she was feeling angry. And after the first round, she was feeling very sad. And then after the second round, she was feeling confused. Now, nothing had changed in the outside events, the people the life circumstances that her mind was telling her were causing her anger and then was causing her sadness and then was causing her confusion. And yet her emotional state went through this progression from anger to sadness to confusion. I think there might have been a fear in there too before she got to confusion. So the idea is we can observe directly that the outside event is not the cause of my emotions because the outside event remains the same, I apply the tool and my emotions change. Where do I apply the tool? Inside myself, in my own thought process, in my own emotional state, in my own relationship to my body's physical energy system and awareness. So if that's where I'm applying the tool and a change happens, that's just a very clear demonstration to me that the source of the negative emotional state was inside of me it's it if it responds to the use of the tool wherever i applied the tool that's where the source of the, the pain or discomfort was so i might be aware that you know what in our culture male dominated culture Women are considered lesser, and this is just an observable thing. You can look at the pay scales, and you can look at um, the churches that are disbanding um, congregations because they have a woman pastor. you, You can understand this. It's a real thing. The difficulty comes in. When I then choose to say that I'm only upset because that's happening, and if I choose that thought pattern or interpretation, I sentence myself, this self-created, self-induced nonsense, I sentence myself to the experience of being a victim. In that process, when I choose the interpretation that I'm only feeling upset because this external experience in the culture or in the religion or that that's why I'm upset, in that moment, I have made it almost impossible for me to relieve my upset because of the interpretation I'm choosing and placing on my life experience. Area code 828, this is Magda.
0: Yep, that's me. How are you doing today, Dr. Tim?
2: I'm all right. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Um, um, I've been wanting to share for a while now how very important uh, the part of the worksheet has become for me where after canceling my goal, asking Ruka Dikucha to help me to be aware of what's going on in my mind, uh, in my unconscious mind that is really causing my, my upset or whatever else is important for me to see. Uh, and that became apparent once again. I've been getting great mileage out of that in my worksheet. Um, and if you want, I can share a worksheet I did uh, yesterday that showed this again. Sure. Um, I won't run through each part. uh, Well, I'll just, I'll paraphrase. So, uh, my trigger in this particular case was God, with a capital G. And my reality is that God... Uh, placed me in my birth family as a punishment. My thought around that was because there was something wrong with me and I needed to be punished and I didn't deserve a better family. And um, my feeling, my emotion was true, resentment and sadness. And um, so my punishment thought then was for to punish God by turning my back on his church, the church I was brought up in, which I did, and I didn't go to, go to church for a long, long time, and then eventually I chose what I considered a better spiritual leader, which I named the source, <laughs> which is the same as what other people mean when they say God, but that God... The God I had in mind who was punishing me was a very vengeful God. And and the source is very loving. Um, and so my goal was uh, that I want even the old God, the one I was brought up with, to see that I am a bright and beautiful spark of creation and give me a loving and supportive family so I can have great, positive, self-esteem and then I did the releases and um, and did cancellations and then I came to the part of asking Ruka Dukucha to help me be aware of my myself as love well and stay in that actively and become let myself um, become aware of what was going on it was really really underneath everything. And what I got is that, well, I don't know if it was instead, what I got was my awareness that uh, in between lives, because I do believe in reincarnation, that makes sense to me. So in between lives, I was the one who chose my next set of parents and circumstances so that I could work out with and continue to grow, and so indeed, my family was not God's punishment but my own self selected growth opportunity. so that took me from the sadness that I had to this quiet, peaceful happiness it took me from from a level ten upset to a level one upset. And uh and that was I you know, I that was something I thought I knew. I did know at one time, I believed, this is my belief at least. And and I had conveniently forgotten because I wanted to blame instead of realizing the gift that I had been given. So it was it was a big um, it was a big aha for me to re remember that truth my truth
2: wonderful and that's a, another really good example of what I was just talking about that if I choose an interpretation for my life circumstance and it leaves me feeling a negative emotional state. If I believe that interpretation and I'm not willing to change it, I'm not willing to cancel my need to be right, then I've doomed myself to be a victim. I've doomed myself to stay in that negative emotional state or upset or torture or whatever.
0: Mm -hmm. But as
2: soon as I'm willing to change that interpretation, genuinely change that interpretation, I open this the floodgates of the possibility of change. And this is a wonderful example. You just went from a very, very high upset down to a level one, and Mm -hmm. the actuality of your life hasn't changed at all. Not at all. But the interpretation that you're pouring your mind energy into has changed rather dramatically. From God has done this to me to I chose this as a growth opportunity. Right, right.
0: It's all an inside job. Every time, of course, it comes back to this. It's an inside job, girl. Look what, look at what's really happening. Yeah.
2: And when I'm willing to do the worksheets and demonstrate that to myself repeatedly, mm-hmm. and just like Tara Brock was talking about in the lecture last night, I build the brain cells for it. Michael Rice would say I build the brain cells for it. Tara Brock would say it gets. To be a stronger thought pattern it gets to be easier to fall into that it gets to be more a sustainable way to rewrite the false negative beliefs Mm -hmm. and so you know that's why we talk so much in this work about the value of being willing to put the pen to paper to pick up the tool and apply it to my life but here's a very powerful example you just gave when your interpretation of your life experience is, God did this to me because I'm bad and I need to be punished, you generate Mm -hmm. a lot of negative emotions and a sense of victimhood.
0: Absolutely.
2: As soon as you shift to the thought, I chose this as a growth opportunity, you end up with an entirely different life experience and state of emotion right now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, it was. It was right now. Yeah. And it's it's like flipping a coin and getting to the other side. It's still my life. It's still a coin. But now I see the other side.
2: Yeah, and 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 the other side which is just a potential. It's just a possibility. Is it the truth? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the truth. This is what the way of mastery calls us to so much. We were talking about it so heavily yesterday and the day before. What's the absolute truth of my life? I don't know. I do, however, know that if I choose an interpretation about the absolute truth of my life that leaves me feeling negative, I'm going to keep feeling that negativity unless or until I choose a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. And if I change the interpretation that I'm placing on life and I feel better... Now, the choice is mine. Do I want to stay in that better feeling state, or do I want to question it and wonder? Well, I wonder if this is really the truth, or I wonder, you know, if if we are really in, reincarnated, or if God really is angry at me, and I have the ability to step back into that endless cycle of questioning, and that's also a possibility. I don't. I don't need to keep choosing for joy and love and peace and aliveness but I could
0: (laughs) it is a good choice Yes, (laughs) I remember years ago when um, my thinking was incredibly black and white either this or that good or bad there was nothing in between and I remember being in a Um, group therapy kind of situation and I was told that every time I think I see something clearly my exercise was to think of at least four different ways I could interpret that and of course there's an abundance it's not just four or three or twelve and that really helped me stretch And I just realized now gave me a lot more um, compassion for being able to listen to and understand where other people were coming from when their opinions differed from mine. Um, uh, That was a good piece of uh, information.
2: Yeah, did and you ever was, stop to think about how how your thinking got to be so black and white?
0: Well, I just zoomed right back to the Catholic Church. i
2: Well, I think that was the same. Sure, the the answer for that for every one of us is because that's what we were taught. Right. Right. And the more we are taught flexibility in thought, creativity, allowance, surrender, the more we learn that. But in Mm -hmm. this Western culture, it is extraordinarily rare for us to be taught that level of flexibility. I remember listening to a Diedrich Wolczak uh, interview, and he was interviewing the person and talking about how – You could say from an evolutionary perspective and certainly from a trained perspective, what we're trained into in our thinking, how common it is for us, all of us, to choose a negative interpretation for events whenever they unfold. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer said, Mm -hmm. so what do you mean by that? Give me an example. And so Diedrich said, okay, well, let's just take a look at what's one of the last situations that happened in your life where you were left feeling upset and the gentleman said well you know here's this situation where i knew i was going to be gone for vacation and it would be the perfect time to have work done on my house and i did all the research and found the contractor and i set it up and i paid him and i told him an outline that he visited visit the house he said yes he's going to do that <clears throat> and i came back from vacation and nothing had been done the guy didn't do any of the work. I think he ripped me off completely, and, and he you know he just he saw me as a sucker, and and the guy went on and on with all this negative interpretation. And Diedrich Wolzak said, "Okay, and that's a valid, you know, guess about why he didn't show up at your house." And Diedrich mm-hmm. said, "Now, let's have you generate some other possibilities." The guy said, what do you mean? He said, well, is there any other reason you can think of why this person may not have come and done the work at your house? And the guy started rattling off, well, maybe his uh, car broke down, maybe he got physically sick, you know, maybe his dad's in the hospital. Maybe uh, you know, There's a whole list of other possibilities that might have been happening that would prevent this contractor from showing up to do the work and they've got nothing to do with ripping this guy off or taking advantage of him. Right. And and he was just amazed by the exercise, as most of us would be when we're ushered into that, just to start to realize, oh, wow, look at how quickly my mind went to all of this negativity as though that was the only option and how certain I was that that's what, what's exactly going on here. When there is no certainty involved in that, I have no idea why that person didn't show up to do the work at my house. But when I'm programmed to think the negativity and think the worst, that's what I think. That's what happens. My programming kicks in, and that becomes my Mm -hmm. experience. And the Reality Management Worksheet is a way for me to... Get clear about that and release that programming or that thought process and choose again. Choose something more loving. Choose to release the negative and create the space for the, the truth of my nature to become my conscious awareness.
0: I mm-hmm. you know, we don't have much time, uh, but I, I do want to mention out loud so that I can help myself imprint this. Um, reaching for the negative as an automatic because that's what we're taught. I just realized that for the first 20-plus years of my life, I always tried to prepare for the future by thinking of the most negative possibilities, the most negative outcomes, so that I would not be caught unaware, so that I would be ready of course, it was silly because I couldn't be ready for anything except to say, well, you didn't surprise me. I expected that. And, and of course, because of um, the energetic stuff I was putting out, I was actually inviting that which I was not wanting, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness.
2: Yeah, without, without realizing it, if we're not taught yeah. that that's how the world works by resonance, then, yeah, we... Mm-hmm. Start putting that energy out, and we start bringing more of it back into our lives. And right. as Michael would say, we're unconsciously creating, and the whole point of this work is to move into conscious co-creation.
0: Yes,
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for the call mm-hmm. and for sharing. I know we're down to our last minute and 20 seconds, so I will meet you so you can mm-hmm. listen into the second hour. I appreciate mm-hmm. the call. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. Blessings. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. Welcome Jeannie Rice.
1: Thank you, Doctor Tim. I appreciate you. You're
2: very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show.
1: Thank you. So welcome everybody to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Wednesday, March the first, twenty twenty three. And I would give you the calling number. However, I am going to play a show, and we have um, Aramaicisms, and there's four parts, and I have a feeling this is going to happen quite often in the next week. Michael is in Kansas City, and he is um, helping uh, CJ's brother just came in, and so he's getting ready to take him over to the to see CJ, and Chris is coming in tomorrow. and. There's just so much stuff going on up there that I have a feeling that I'm going to be playing quite a few. So I'm going to start with Aramaicisms, part one. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Hold us in the space.
3: So welcome, everybody, to Aramaicisms. And our topic tonight is going to be the discerning of the truth of the endangered Aramaic thought system. We're going to look into that thought system that sourced at least six of the world's major religions and we're going to work toward understanding in particular the first century meanings of its words. I'd like to introduce uh, Aramaic scholar Dale Allen Hoffman who uh, as a young man at the age of 15 showed up at our teaching center curious wanting to know and he tapped into the Kabor's manuscript in the Aramaic and uh, the rest is history. He's becoming one of the most uh, renowned practical scholars on the planet. I say practical because there are many scholars who live in their heads, have never had an experience of what actual spirituality is, what the actual presence of love is, that is the purpose of these ancient Aramaic teachings, but live in their heads and talk about those things where Dale travels the globe and teaches people how to have that experience. So Dale, I'm delighted to be here on the stage with you. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, uh, Michael's
4: introducing me so that I can introduce him. And then, are you going to introduce me again? or I? Right, no, nah, we'll just go for okay. one. <laughs> uh, first, let me say welcome. I normally, anybody who's ever been to one of my events before, we always begin with toning and prayer. And uh, I'm actually going to sidestep that, step that a little bit. We're going to do the introductions first. We'll get to the toning and prayer part. Um, yeah, I showed up at Heartland in 1995. Just, I want to make this as brief as I can. It was when I was seven years old that I took out, grew up in the Methodist Church, which I'm happy about because that means I didn't have a lot of fireballs thrown in my face, so I didn't have a lot of things I had to pull out later on. But uh, it was when I was seven years old that I sat down on my grandmother's living room floor on a carpet and I laid out five different Bibles. And I opened up to the Beatitudes, which was my favorite thing in the world, from the Gospel of Matthew, Mattai and Aramaic. And I compared them to each other. And I didn't do it because I was trying to learn something. I was just interested. Like, how different is this going to be? The, the freakish thing was that two of them were com- nothing like the others, and these three were basically different from each other. It was just this weird thing, nothing, and I don't just mean slight variations, I mean none of them really lined up with the other. Then when I was 14, that's when I would sit down and open up to the red words of Jesus in the Bible and I would write down a couple of the lines and riff on that for line after line after line and I'd write 8 to 10 pages that nobody ever read because I didn't write it because somebody needed to read it. I read or wrote those because I had to. And then when I was 21, I start hearing more about, I start getting more into Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, and I kept hearing about this uh, guy. As a matter of fact, I was in a Course in Miracles group study group down in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, and somebody said to me, uh, "Michael Rice is coming to town." I'm like, "Oh, really? Good. Okay." They're like, "He does the Aramaic," and I'm like, what is Like Macarena or something? Does the Aramaic?" <laughs> Funny thing that at that age, as deep as I was into the Bible, I didn't know what Aramaic was. And I'm like, well, what's Aramaic? And they're like, well, that's the language Jesus spoke. And I went, hmm, he didn't speak English? And everybody laughing at me, ah! Oh. People don't think about that, believe it or not. Uh, and then I said Arabic, right? And they're like, no, Aramaic. And I went, aromatic? And they're like, yeah, it means he smells really good. So anyway, here I end up at, in Clearwater, Florida, at a workshop called Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And uh, literally by the first break, I was like literally sitting on my hands, my eyes are gushing tears, my heart's beating out of my chest, I'm laughing, I'm crying, and I walked up to him and I still remember that look that he gives, that sort of that, he gave me the look, it was a different kind of a look, and he said, what's happening? He said, it looks like I could peel you off the ceiling right now. And I said, whatever you've got, I want it all. And I ended up at Heartland. And what happened at Heartland is I didn't get deep into the actual language. That came later. What I got deep into was the experience. And I got deep into the actual Aramaic process of forgiveness uh, that's been so misunderstood in the last 2,000 years. You ever play Past the Secret? You know, you're in kindergarten and on this end it's like, The boy in the green shirt fell into a hole, and over here the elephant walked sideways while he was... It it makes no sense to what's over here. Imagine that in 2,000 years. So I got really deep into that, and then from there I started getting really deep into the language itself, into the texts themselves and translations. And I'll talk a little bit later about things like x-ray copies of Bibles, where you can actually see if ink soaked through from the other side of the page and lands in just the right spot to change either the phonetic marking or the letter itself, which can change the meaning completely. Yeah, it happens more than you'd realize. Um, but the thing that happened in 1995 was <sighs> I got the base. My heart was opened up by what Michael was teaching, mostly because of the actual forgiveness process, which of course we'll probably touch on, I'm sure, in the next few sure nights. We will. Uh, But it changed everything for me and I've seen over the last 20 years, I've seen a lot of people, I've seen Michael's work, he won't say it, I'll say it, borrowed by a lot of people and then twisted because they didn't really put it into practice and understand it. And then they will kind of repackage it in a different variety that's more palatable for the masses. Um, When it comes to integrity, I know of no person who's out there teaching that number one walks it more than him or has the integrity and will literally take responsibility right in the present moment for anything that he on some level didn't realize, you know, was happening, he'll eat it right there in front of you. So that's a huge, 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 uh, I want to say mentor, but it's like we're brothers and it's like we're, there's just, it's this egoless relationship. So I want to say thank you for being here and I'm going to uh, turn it back to him, and uh, I think you should say a little bit about your background first, and then talk about how crazy the stuff I've done over
3: the years is, or something. Cool. I was thinking that the first time you came to Heartland, you were about fifteen. It was. I know 21? you. you I, no, no, I was. Uh, yeah, twenty.
4: Okay. Twenty-two, actually. Yeah.
3: Okay.
4: Yeah, you always say that. So. I do. I always say that. That's alive
3: What can I say? You'll forgive it someday, but it's true. So, let's set the stage. You are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. And we set up a workshop series, and we hear from this gentleman in Russia who wants to come to the workshop series. And we know you've got an extra room in your house, so we ask if you would mind picking this person up at the airport, airport, translating for them, and housing them, and then taking them back to the airport at the end of the week. And you're just delighted to have that opportunity. And at the end of the week, you know, by the time the week is out, we've had dinner a couple of times, we went out for lunch with this fellow, we had a great time, just a, a wonderful man. And so at the end of the week, I want him to know, I don't speak any Russian, I want him to know what I think of him, and so I ask if you would tell him that I think that he's really cool. And you say, okay, and you turn to him in Russian, and you say, Michael thinks you've got a low body temperature. (laughs) Now, you translated my words perfectly, but you obviously didn't say a word about what I meant. In most circles, where what is purported to be the teachings of the man named Yeshua, if he walked into those circles and listened to it, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. Because Greek ideas have supplanted his original first century Aramaic thought system. And the Aramaic language is a very idiomatic language. And imagine, let's take a, a little statement with a couple of idioms in it that you'll understand perfectly because they're idioms in use today in English. But imagine that we're going to put them in a time capsule, and 2,000 years from now, somebody who speaks English is going to unwrap them. We're not going to go through three, four, five languages, cultures, and We're just going to take this statement, and imagine somebody 2,000 years from now opening and reading this description of this gentleman's day. And so the description goes like this. I went to the office this morning and found myself in a pickle with my boss. And she canned me. I went to my desk to clean it out. I needed to go to the can. I came back, finished cleaning out my desk, went home. My wife was in the kitchen canning. And she said, help me if you can. And I said, I can't. Now, you know exactly what I just said. But imagine somebody 2,000 years from now where who knows what kind of word changes have taken place. Imagine what kind of mindset it's going to take to understand what I just said. We have a friend out in California and he oftentimes houses foreign students. And he had a young Chinese student who came and lived in his home while he was going to school. And this normally happy person came home from school one day all in an upset, like so visibly upset that my friend Donald said to him, what's, what's going on for you? He said, well, very bad day at school. And, and Donald said, well, what happened? You seem to have been having such a great time in school. He said, at school they called me a very bad name. And Donald said, well, what did they call you? He said, I looked it up in the dictionary. They, they called me a very bad name. They said I was a cold cowboy. Donald looked at him, it's like, you know, it's not exactly the vernacular of this language. So Well, so what exactly did they say to you? They said, I was a cool dude. <laughs> and I looked it up in the dictionary, and to him, it wasn't a very nice thing to be called a cold cowboy. The Aramaic language is rife with these kinds of problems and challenges. And, and the thought system in Aramaic, and that's why we're talking about restoring an endangered thought system, the thought system in Aramaic is a complete thought system that includes everything you could possibly experience through your body-mind unit, how to make sure that it stays on track and that you stay in high-level wellness. And that thought system is endangered by a thought system based in hostility and fear. If you ever held a newborn child and Jeannie and I have asked the question, how many have ever held a newborn child? And asked people just to describe the essence of the newborn. It's a question we've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe. And everybody who describes the essence of their newborn uses a word that reflects some variation on the theme of love. Why? Because everybody knows what human life is. Then we come into the culture and the culture starts to put its thumbprints on us. And once we are struck with those thumbprints, we tend to lose awareness of the experience of ourselves as this awesome active presence of love and the cellular effect of that experience, which is bliss and ecstasy. The child comes in experiencing that, and we're designed to live in that. And the culture with its thumbprints changes the thought system from one that supports living in that state, to one based in a different state. The second question that Jeannie will usually ask at the opening of the Why Is This Happening To Me Again workshop is how many have ever done something they regret? And again, having asked tens of tens of thousands of people that question, everybody's answer is some variation on the theme of hostility or fear. The language and the thought system of hostility and fear is replacing the language and the thought system and the support system for living as human beings, for living as love. It's as though human life is almost gone from the planet. And what we're looking to do is to solidify and restore an understanding of that first century Aramaic thought system that supports us really, truly experiencing living in our physiology in ecstasy, and bliss, 24-7, 365, whatever's going on in our world, what we feel from is designed to come from being, the state of a human life, who we are. And we get converted, we get shifted out of that into a thought system based in hostility or fear, and once we plug into that, then our minds tend to work and produce everything it produces in that hostility and fear system, which is insane compared to the system based in human life. I define insanity as a human form without the active presence of love in it. If you go back 2,000 years ago, you hear this man, Yeshua, saying, My words are your perfect life. You'll notice he doesn't say, I am, he says, my words are. Vladimir Lenin says, you can destroy a culture by doing one simple thing. All you have to do is change the meaning of its words. Well, how could you destroy a culture by changing the meaning of words? Culture is transferred from generation to generation through words and thought. If you change the thought behind words that are important to living as love, then you lose the ability to live as you're designed to live. We are here to convert everybody on the planet, not into anyone's church. That's the non-being mind's cheap copy of conversion. Conversion is bringing each of us back to a love-based thought system, a love-based mind that works as it was designed to work. You can go back into the sixth century, and there was a man named Rabala, he was a bishop. And Rabula decided he knew how it should work. Rabula is the root word for our idiom today of a rabble rouser. That's the kind of mind this guy had. He went everywhere he could and destroyed every Aramaic writing he could find, every Aramaic scripture, and replaced it with his own translations. And what we're looking to do is to re-establish the Aramaic thought system and come back to the truth of who we are.
4: We're going to get into some wild stuff tonight. Um, one of the... Uh, there's a base I'd like to set. Actually, there's a quote I have. This is from a guy that's been a huge inspiration to me, and I think that there's certain people that... I think people that are out there teaching this guy's teachings and sort of twisting those a bit, too. His name's Ernest Holmes. Anybody ever heard of him before? He said, if the philosophy of Christianity were lived, were lived, wars would cease, unhappiness would cease, economic problems would be solved, poverty would be wiped from the face of the earth, and man's inhumanity to man would be transmuted into a spirit of mutual helpfulness. And here's the base that I'd like to lay before we go forward. But we're going to talk a bit more about this either later tonight or tomorrow. But everybody, I talked about those Beatitudes. I've had this relationship with the Beatitudes since I was about five years old. Uh, Everybody know what the Beatitudes are? Maybe, maybe not. Anybody know what the third Beatitude is? It's one of the questions I get asked the most. Anybody know their Beatitudes? This is from the Sermon on the Mount, first public teaching of Yeshua. I'll give you a little bit of a hint. They're the blessed are statements. We're going to get to those a little bit later, but... The third one says, blessed are the meek. Um, even though it's a subject for later in the evening, I wanted to start with this base, at least for me. Uh, first of all, it doesn't translate as blessed are the doormats. Okay, that word, The best word that I can give you in English for this, because this to me is one of the absolute bedrocks of being able to, to be open to learn. The best word I can give you in English is humility. Now humility comes from the Latin word humus, which isn't a Middle Eastern chickpea dip that's like great with pita breads and carrots and stuff, that's hummus. Humus anybody know what humus means? What's humus? Any gardeners? Soil. It's that it's the the, the earthy open it, it's the earthy open soil that has those beautiful fertile roots and water can flow very much through it. Humus literally is a Latin root that means an open relationship with the earth open flowing from the Tao to Ching where it says the Tao is like a river flowing home to the sea it also says in the Tao that there's nothing more powerful yet yielding than water okay now the reason I say this is because one of the things that we definitely in his decades and my decades of study one of the things we don't see a lot of is humility what we do see a lot of is, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm the expert, whatever that may be. Um, it's intriguing. You, you can mark my words on this. I would say film it and you know put it somewhere, but that's happening anyway. The people that are considered biblical experts today, okay, 2015, especially in terms of Christianity, over the next two decades, many of them are going to be turned on their heads. And the people that are looked at as the disturbing elements out on the fringe who are talking about things that other people label conspiracy theories, etc., are all of a sudden going to be pulled into the center of the room and people are going to honor and say, guess what? You were right. And this means people like Bart Ehrman, Elaine Pegels, uh, James Tabor. There's just so many names I can pull out of a hat. Lots of people that are... Uh, people are labeling them as being, just trying to like be troublemakers or something. And here's the thing. Um, Just because a theology or a belief system, BS, is predominant and widely spread and everybody seems to buy into it, doesn't mean that's what's correct. Okay? And there's one thing that can become danger and that's fundamentalism because what fundamentalism can masquerade as is keeping a truth alive in its original intention The danger in that is all it needs is a slight shift here and then a slight shift here and then a slight alteration here and a slight alteration here. Remember past the secret and you go several thousand years down the line and people think they're getting what's real, but that's not necessarily what they're getting. And here's the other thing. When you're in the fences of theology, there's a danger in that Because you're told, look, if you stay in this fence, you're safe, you are in the family, you are in our social club, we will support you, we will love you. If something happens, if you're starving, we'll come feed you. But
2: don't go outside of the fence.
4: What happens when you go outside of the fence? Intriguingly, I started with a guy that was already outside of the fence... Which I'm hap- happy about because here's the thing. I started going to lots of conventions, started going very deep into like symposiums that would last a week on ancient languages. And I used to notice, I started noticing after a while that the people that screamed the loudest and their eyes would bulge the furthest out of their head like a Simpsons cartoon were the ones that usually won the arguments. Interesting thing. The one that didn't give up. And that's when I started studying you know, lots of different things that tied right in with Aramaic, like the way that uh, you can actually go and go to a theological seminary, some kind of biblical-based academy, and get one sentence mentioning that, oh, by the way, the Jesus guy spoke Aramaic. And Okay, back to the Greek thing now. And I had issues with this. And I started digging in. Why would this happen? Why would this happen? And I started studying guys like Irenaeus. That was the guy that Uh, is responsible for as an example changing the gospel of the beloved disciple which was about a woman into the gospel of John which is about a man Um, he's the guy that oversaw the forgeries of a lot of the Pauline letters they're still in the Bible today Um, look in Constantine and I saw that an original Aramaic thought system that was broken down and broken down and broken down and twisted and manipulated and let's bring in some Egyptian mythology which is basically the entire history of the Jesus lifetime and you start looking at all these things and you start learning what's actually real anymore and that's when I started to realize that truth is not something I'm going to find on a page it's not something in the letters truth is a direct experience there's a real danger in thinking that the concepts in your mind that you're projecting on letters on the page are what's right, as opposed to the realization that what you are looking for is what is looking, in the words of St. Francis of Assisi. And that's what I got from Michael's work. That's what I got from actually doing the breath work and doing the forgiveness process and realizing that Yeshua wasn't telling us to go out there and add stuff in. He was actually showing us how to take things off. And this actually, Michael was speaking of that joy and that ecstasy, One of the, probably one of the most misunderstood teachings that came out of Yeshua's mouth has to do with prayer. Do you want to start that off? Sure,
3: yeah. Well, you look at that word and you hear the disciples asking Yeshua, teach us to pray. Now, let's imagine that I'm a voice teacher and you said to me, Michael, teach me to sing. Would I be teaching you to sing if I sang you a song? Obviously not. What would I do? I'd give you some instructions for how to sing. Many people are shocked to realize that what the world has called the Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer. It's a set of instructions for how to pray. And in Aramaic, what does the word prayer mean? Well, it's kind of a shock for most people in the West until they start to understand it. But the word means, more closely, to set a trap for God. Which the average mind goes, well, what does that mean, to set a trap for God? Well, if you think about your television set, and you've got an antenna on the roof, and you're tuned to channel 2, if your antenna is shaped properly and oriented correctly, then your antenna is a trap for channel 2, feeds a good signal in, and you get a clear picture and clear sound. If someone goes up and bends the arms on the antenna, turns it backward, or drives into the parking lot with a car car that's poorly tuned, then you're not going to have a very good trap or device to bring that signal in. So in Aramaic, there's the recognition that this physiological device is designed to capture the live active presence of love and bring it into the world. What is God? God is love. So when we are properly attuned and aligned, and the word that's been translated as soul can also be properly translated as attuning mechanism, when we're attuned, then there is this awesome active presence of love that sprays or radiates from us onto everyone. Anyone who walks the world in that modality is a walking field for healing humanity. And so what you find in the Aramaic Lord's Prayer is, here's how you attune and align yourself to be the space where love shows up. So it's a set of instructions. As I can remember three times, the third time I wrote the Beatitudes out, using the dictionary in the back of our publication, Kaburis, the Enlightenment book. And I was always taught that the, uh, the Beatitudes were this nice philosophy. And the third time I wrote it out longhand, we've got a first century dictionary in the back of that book, Enlightenment. The first time I wrote it out longhand, it was like, oh my God, this is an instruction set. This is a how-to. The so-called Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer. It's an instruction set for how to capture and reflect into the world the active presence of love, especially if you're facing what the world calls an enemy. How do you do that? You know, there are lots of nice words that are said about, well, you should love your neighbor, but if you've got somebody who's full of rage, and you tell them to love their neighbor, chances are they're going to end up in huge amounts of guilt, because they have no clue how to love their neighbor, And therefore, when their rage, their fear, their sadness, their anger comes up, they've failed and they are dashed into the dirt and they buy the the belief system that there's something wrong with them when the truth is nobody showed them how to do that. And if nobody shows us how to do something, how do we do it? The Lord's Prayer is a set of instructions for how to do that. The Beatitudes are a set of instructions for how to activate an unconscious neural structure that's designed to guide us to happiness and well-being. So we see instructions and by and large that's the piece that's been lost because you can't understand, truly understand a set of instructions until you follow them. You can't talk about a set of instructions until you've truly experienced them. You can't describe the result of following a set of instructions until you follow them and experience the result. So you see lots of people, in fact, Yeshua talked about these people 2,000 years ago. He says, you put all these people to their work, and you won't touch one bit of it yourself. And that, unfortunately, is what's happened with the ivory tower. I remember Dale sharing with me, being at a conference, and they're arguing over the meaning of words. And Dale said, well, has anybody ever tried this? Put it Anybody into ever, practice, maybe? Put this actual practice. What happened when you did that? <laughs> they looked at me as
4: if I had lobsters crawling out of my ears for about 20 seconds, and then they just looked back at each other
3: and started arguing again as if I didn't even exist. So
4: was <laughs> a good lesson. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so what we want to do is get down to the practical how-to and to understand what those first century meanings meant. Love is not something we do to each other. Hmm. Love is a state of being. Think about the newborn. It's not something the newborn's doing, it's what the newborn is. When I ask you to tap into the experience of holding a newborn, notice you don't have to go to your head or your intellect to do that. You go back to the experience of that presence that was there. If I ask you that other question, how many have ever done something they regret? Notice you have to go into your head and think about this event, and what did I do, what did I feel? This is all something that's happening in the head. And ultimately, in order to heal, the key tool will be the tool of forgiveness. And what it does is it empowers you to be out of your mind, to drop the mental games and get into the actual experience of yourself as this awesome active presence of love living through a form that is attuned, that is a trap, that captures and gives a place for you to embody and express in the world. This physicist, Yeshua, 2,000 years ago said, a little leavening leavens the whole loaf. I think we're fairly safe in assuming he wasn't talking about bread. (laughs) What was he talking about? He was saying if we can get enough human beings incarnated into human forms, then we're going to create a critical mass of love that is going to shift and heal every mind on the planet and so that's what we're aiming to do is to give people the tools and understand in context in the first century the instructions he was giving for how to experience yourself as this awesome active presence of love regardless of what's going on in your world and when you do that you will naturally live in humility and it is that that fertile place and it's an ability it's a mental ability to see and cooperate with the highest and best in others. When you're in your hostility or fear-based mind, how many have ever had the experience of, you know, I heard, I, I just heard, it's about love, I got it. It's about love. And you went home to that person and you said, I got it, it's about love. And that's where I'm going to live forevermore. Especially with you. And, and then that's what you did with that person, right? Until the next time they gave you the look. <laughs> and what happened to your resolve to live as love? If nobody gave you the tool of forgiveness, you didn't know how to do it. Because that look resonated something out of your body's mind that was different than love. And when it comes up, like Goliath in the story of David and Goliath, it takes over. And your choice is rendered useless. And so, how do you actually embody and incarnate a human life in a human form? Just because someone has what looks like a human body does not mean there's human life in there. If you listen to Yeshua, he said, I come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly. He didn't say, I come to bring you fear, I come to bring you threat, I come to bring you suffering. He said, I come to bring you life. I come to teach you how to pray, how to incarnate as the active presence of love and extend that to all the world. And when we move into that space, everything changes. It's not a head game anymore. It's not an intellectual journey. Mm. See, I'm already writing
4: things down. I knew it. as soon as we start going, I'm like, ooh, we didn't think of that one. Uh, there's a subject, and then I'm going to refocus back on, on the Lord's Prayer itself, which is this. You know, one of, the, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that when you sit in, and in English look at the words of Jesus, Jesus comes from the Greek word that means Hail Zeus, in case you didn't know that. Um, ooh. Uh, intriguingly, when you sit and you look at it from an English perspective, a lot of people don't realize that the words that you're seeing on the page weren't actually there originally. Maybe you just, you know it on some level, but you're not really acknowledging it. One of those words that, uh, trying to think of, oh, I come to give you life and give it abundantly. The word life. Now, let me say something here first. Um, It's an intriguing thing when I started really getting deep into Aramaic, because if I met 10 different people, they would say the same words 10 different ways. Their cops were chetz, and there was just all these kinds of... Kind of like going from Boston to where they park the car to going down, you know, around here. I can't do southern for some reason, even though I've been here for 12 years. I just can't. I can say y'all or all y'all. I think up to three is y'all. For three or, or four or more, it's all y'all. But um, I don't have the dialect in there. Intriguingly, though, looking at that, that phrase, I come to give you life and give it abundantly, that word life in Aramaic is haya or haya. Okay? In Jesus' language. Chaya. There's a bunch of other words that was trans that that word was translated as. Chaya is the word life. I come to give you life, give it abundantly. You ever heard like saved? You have have you people ask me that sometimes, you know, some of the sort of like what exists as American evangelical white Christianity today, number one does not exist outside of this country unless an American took it there. Number two, it's only about three or four decades old, okay? The thought systems, the lingo, the words they use, it's very new. One of those things that I get asked is, have you been saved? Now, let me ask you a question briefly here. Let's say that your kid is playing with a ball in the front yard and whatever, you're trimming the hedges, and there's a car going by 50. 50 miles an hour in a a 20 mile an hour zone and the child runs to grab the ball from the middle of the street and you run as fast as you can to grab the child and pull that child back. What did you just do? You saved them, right? What does save mean? What does it mean to save? Preserved life. Preserved life. You just preserved life. You just, a life, a life that appeared like it was about to end and you kept it going. Save is the word chaya in Aramaic. Resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. The word resurrection in Aramaic is the word chaya. There's a lot of words that theology was laid on top when it was the same word in so many different places. Another word would be amen, which is at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Amen. Amen. Uh, intriguingly, there's no ah eh sound in ancient Aramaic. There's no a. Eh. So if you say amen, there is no sound in that language like that. Okay. Now, intriguingly, amen, if you ever heard assuredly, assuredly I say to you, or verily, verily I say to you, that's actually the word amen. Interesting. It was, it was changed. Why was it changed? Who knows? Um, we're going to talk about a lot of words like that, but now I want to I focus for a few minutes just on the Lord's Prayer itself. Uh, we'll revisit the word Lord later, but I will say this just very briefly. Jesus was never called Lord. Jesus never called anything or anyone Lord. I can say that absolutely. You know why I know that as a fact? Even though I wasn't there? Because the word Lord did not exist. Okay? Now, that word Lord, that's translated from the Greek as kurios, which comes from kairos, which means essentially outside of time and space. Uh, it's a realization that would be a sister word of agape which is essentially oneness with everything okay now that word Lord in Aramaic sounds like this Maria Maria we're going to come back to this sound a little bit later Maria interesting did you know that Jesus didn't say Lord he said Maria later on we'll talk about what that means what the actual word means completely but here we are, we've got something we're calling the Lord's Prayer. Does anybody know where the word Lord comes from? The English word. Really, that's basically it. It comes from feudalism. It comes from feudalism basically within the realm of the Church of England. Actually, even prior to the Church of England. We might get to King James at some point, interesting fellow. But um, literally, it comes from feudalism. and it was called, He was the landowner, he was the giver of life, the bread giver. It was a codependent power person term. Stop using the word Lord. It has nothing to do with what was there originally. And just very briefly, that word for Lord, Maria, the mar, I say we'll talk about it a little more later. Mar in Aramaic means a bedrock of strength. Something coming from bedrock. You know the red rock in the sky, Mars? Mar and rea. What does rea or Ria sound like? Re, re, ra, ora. They're all Aramaic root sounds. Life, sun, light, excuse me, light or sun, rea, ma rea, literally means one who shines a rea, feminine light. Feminine light is not the masculine light that we see, but, well, you mentioned about holding a baby. That light that a baby exudes, that's not something you're seeing, it's sensed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those who radiated that light from a place, from a bedrock of strength, were called lord. Interesting, Maria. If you put an M on the end of Maria, which is the letter Mem, it literally is Mariam or Miriam, which is the word Mary, intriguingly. So what we're going to do is a little bit briefly about prayer, and then what I'm going to do is actually pray the prayer for you. But I'm not going to pray it in a sort of just everyday wishy-washy, spit it out like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Even in Aramaic, I'm not going to do that. Uh, It's important. It's funny. You can actually find recordings of people speaking the Aramaic Lord's Prayer in all these different dialects, and they're usually going so fast it's like they're trying to like do it at like a NASCAR race or something so that they can get the flag or something. Uh, It has nothing to do with it. Funny in Mattai, it doesn't say pray these words in Matthew. It says pray in this way. Okay. Now, prayer is something that Michael mentioned setting a trap for God. That word in Aramaic is sluta. Sluta is the word prayer, okay? Now, the Ta genders the word feminine. That's an intriguing thing. I don't want to go too deep, but I will say this in terms of language, and this is especially in Aramaic, specifically. There's a lot of language where languages where um, masculine and feminine get a little wishy washy. It gets a little wishy washy in some of the other Semitic languages. Let me explain what it means, okay? My perception of this flashlight that's in my hand is feminine, okay? The actual light itself that I'm holding is masculine. Feminine meaning experiential. Uh, you could say you could say, pers- my perception of it, it, it's a little bit of a slippery slope because we're learning so much about perception right now, but my awareness of the flashlight is feminine. The actual thing itself is masculine, okay? Now, what that means is this. Sluta, prayer, isn't a thing. It's not words on a page. It's not words that you speak. It's your being. You remember when Yeshua said, pray in my name? Anything you ask the Father in my name, John 15:16. And a lot of times, all the time now, you hear, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, if you actually say in English, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you commit blasphemy. Number one, his name was not Jesus. Number two, that's not what name Shem, Shemach, meaning my name, meant in Aramaic. Now this is the gist before you actually hear the prayer itself. Shem is this. Let me give you Shem. And if you study other Semitic languages, they're not Aramaic, okay? Let me give you it this way. A good example would be Michael Jackson. If I say Michael Jackson, who in this room is just seeing the letters? M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J-A-C-K-S-O-N. Who's happening with that? Just letters. Anybody? What happens when I say Michael Jackson? Aaron's especially smiling, Mr. Music Man. So, It's like you're, you're, what, you're probably seeing his face, you're probably hearing his voice, you're perceiving his consciousness, his overall what? Vibration, essence. You get what I'm saying? And that's Shem. Pray in my Shem is not, number one, pray in my name. Number two, the name isn't about the letters or the things that you speak, but rather when the name is invoked or spoken, you have the awareness of that person's energy pattern, essentially. And when you hear pray in my name, it's not saying the name Yeshua, even. It's literally saying pray from this place. And I'm pretty sure after he said that, he didn't go, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen that way. So what I'm going to do is give, give you a little bit of an example of that. That word, that setting a trap for God, slotha, there's two aspects of that in Aramaic. One aspect is that you have a vision and or something that has been taken from a point of intention to a point of a goal and you hold that in your awareness. And whether you hold it in your arms, loving it and embracing it, or you resist it, as an example, let's say there's, Michael uses this all the time, Uh, I'll say this, don't don't think about Barack Obama, okay? I want you to think about something other than Barack Obama. No Barack Obama. Don't think Barack Obama. And occasionally people will say, Dale, yeah, I wanted to let you know I'm not thinking about what you said to think about. And I'm like, oh, what is it that you're not thinking about right now? And that's the trap. Now here's the thing. One aspect of slow or prayer is you have that vision. And this is a vision that either you are 100% for or against. Because as an example, if someone's got a nervous kick and you try not to think about it and eventually it drives you out of your mind so it's just exactly the same thing. What you push back against, you recreate. It's much like a fractal. And anything that you hold in your awareness, your vision, expands just like this. And there's a force called rucha, which we'll get to later. Ruach in Hebrew, ruch in Arabic, Numa in the Greek. Now, intriguingly, there's another aspect of prayer, which is not just a vision that you hold, like I want to manifest this or whatever that may be, but rather this, that you're just open There's nothing that you're seeking to create, but you're simply open in the humility and the essence of the moment and it opens through you and it literally lives through you. Like as an example, let's look at it this way. Take a breath. Take another one. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let me ask you a little question. What's happening right now? You took two breaths. But what about right now? Are you breathing or are you being breathed? You see the difference? The first one had a goal to take a breath. But it's happening right now without the goal. And that expansion is still happening. This is the difference between what you want and heaven on earth. Your idea of heaven on earth is not heaven on earth. That's not a new earth. Heaven on earth is when your ideas get wiped clean off the slate and heaven can live through you. That's what a new earth comes from. And this is where prayer should come from. Not about words or ideas, but rather from the vibration, the essence itself. So I'm just going to ask you to be open for a few minutes. And I'm not going to, like I say, spit out some scholarly thing. I'm actually going to come down here and just make some sounds. We're going to make a sound first
3: that... Can I throw out a thought before sure. you do that? Sure. First of all, interesting that the word heaven can be properly translated as expansion. The king of expansion. Maya. And when uh, Dale speaks the Lord's Prayer or atones it, I'm going to just invite you to imagine as you close your eyes that, and, and we know that from a point of view of physics, time and space is an illusion. So I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself transported back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You're not listening to Dale Allen Hoffman. You're actually listening to Yeshua's voice and feeling his presence that opens and awakens you to that state where the active presence of love flows through you. Mm. If you spit out words, you're not praying. I
4: I I want to acknowledge, Nick, before we do this, And it seems like it's like, okay, we're getting into this deep place and why would he do this? As an example, a couple of months ago I sat across from you at West End Bakery here and you were like, oh, I've been learning the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And he had been working on it for about two weeks. So I'm expecting like a train wreck, clunky, you know, sidesteps, all kinds of wild stuff. Um, But from the first word, I felt his heart go... And it was like he got it. He got it. He got the heart. And it's funny, when you get the heart, when you get the vibration, the shem, the prayer takes care of itself because it's never about the words. Okay? So let's just be open. I'm just going to offer this to you. All you need to do is just be aware of your breath. I'm going to do a few tones before I make the say the actual prayer itself. And I'm going to give you an English experiential translation this is not a theological black and white literal words on the page this is what's the breadth and the breath and what's the vibration and the essence of what this actually means okay so just stay open oh shmaya Shmach shmoch tete malku Tach leway to beyondak fai Ap wash hablan lakhma de yomana boshboklan hobin waqtahein aikana dab Shwakan shaqan la khayabin wala ta khlar leneesione il apazzan min bisha matul wa tashput da la alam al just stay open our one absolute eternal being of which we are born forth from the realm of the all and the only. I am empty within the ecstasy of Your presence and the purity of Your name. Empower my creative expansion from Your emergence from the unseen realms as I realize our strength and light as one on the manifest earth as in the unmanifest heavenly realms. Provide the nourishment of true insight and realization through me now and in every present moment. Release the echoes of my hidden past. Do not let me lose my true self in forgetfulness and wholly release me from the errors of my perception. For the undivided realm is the absolute, the all, and the only. And our strength of gleaming magnificence from cosmic gathering to cosmic gathering, from age to age, from aeon to aeon, from moment to moment, from now to now. May these clear words be the rooted, fertile earth from which all my actions flow. Amen. Amen. Now you can open your eyes or you can keep them closed. Um, It took me a while of working with Aramaic before I realized that what was, what's held in mind was the very thing that Yeshua was cracking like an eggshell. He's getting us to crack, you know, in the words of Joseph Shelton Pierce, the crack in the cosmic egg.
3: Well, it's an interesting thought to pick up on. And if we look at this device we call a body-mind unit, there's some interesting Harvard research that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is, there are approximately 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in this structure, that in that same time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, the max amount of information that can go into your awareness or your perception the construct of your mind that makes things appear a certain way and you remember Yeshua said don't judge by appearances these things that show up in your mind are appearances and they're made of a maximum according to that Harvard research of nine chunks of information and what those thumbprints do when we come into the world is they attempt to shut us down to this 9-bit mind where whatever is stored in the body's mind is all we have access to. And so we have this maximum and I refer to it as metaphorically the 9-bit mind. And we've been forced into that perception, our so-called educational systems, which have nothing to do with education, The word edukari comes from the root to draw out, it does not mean to put in. But those systems tend to shut us down to this nine-bit mind. And we lose awareness of everything else we're designed to be in touch with. Our ecstatic states come from what I call whole field perception. We listen to Einstein, he says, on such things as matter we've been all wrong. What we've heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibrations have become so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses, there is no matter. So we have this energy field, and we are designed to experience life through all facets of this energy field. When you go into the world of physics, you hear them saying that every molecule in the universe, is in continuous communication with every other molecule in the universe. Now tie that physics idea to the ancients idea of the creator being omnipresent. If the creator is omnipresent, and in that presence we live, move, and have our being, then obviously if we went off into every corner of the universe, we would find embodied love. And if I were to just place these hearts into every corner of our board and let that represent the presence of that love coming to us from every molecule in the universe. It's what the physicists are saying. Now, you think about that, and if every molecule is in continuous communication, does that mean that every molecule is continuously sending you information. And if your whole field is open, then you're receiving information and guidance from every molecule in the universe. If the creator is omnipresent, embodied in all of this, could we properly say that these energies that physics is talking about are in fact... The Spirit, the Ruha, the breath of the Creator coming to us, and as it comes to us, could we be guided by this whole creation if our fields were open to it, which kings don't like, because if you're open and you're guided by that, you become the offspring of the Creator. The ancients said, as many are sons and daughters of love, of God as are led by the Spirit of God. If we hadn't been shut down to a nine-bit mind, if we were able to be open to receive this input from the whole creation, are we then properly called the offspring of the Creator, sons and daughters of the Creator, rather than sons and daughters of what's going on in the nine-bit mind? If you talk to a modern-day physiologist, they'll tell you that your so-called body has as its base element carbon. Did the man named Yeshua live in continuous communication with the whole of the Creator's essence? Or did he live in his nine-bit mind? To those who lived in their nine-bit mind, he said, I have a different father than you. I have a different source than you. Your source comes from what is stored within your device and your nine-bit perception, your appearances. And if you live there, then you are governed and guided by Adamos, the red clay, carbon. And if you look at a carbon atom, what you'll find is that in each carbon atom there are six electrons, Six protons and six neutrons. 666. Six, six, the mark of the past. Everything stored in carbon-based memory is of the past. And if we're stuck in perception from the past, then we are the offspring of the liar, as Yeshua said. He said, your father's a liar. There's no truth in him. Anything that appears in your nine-bit mind from the past is from the past. It's obviously not true right now, but if you buy the perception that comes from the past, you'll act as though what was going on in you 2, 10, 20, 50, 5,000 generations ago is true now, and therefore you're stuck in the lie. That's what Led Yeshua would say. There's no truth in that framer of your structure, and he says, "I have a different father. I live in a different place, and I'm inviting you to go there." I'm here to connect you with the spirit of truth and to knock you out of your nine-bit mind. Those who are locked into their nine-bit mind are really into their money and their stuff and their control and their power and all the games that basically kings play.
1: That was the first part of uh, Aramaicisms. And depending on what happens with Michael up in Kansas City and what all's going on, I may be playing part two tomorrow. So hope you're enjoying listening to him and Dale. And I hope you all have a very awesome day. Create, as Michael says, create the best year yet of your eternal life. Thank you for listening to MindShifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the First Century Aramaic Internal Process of Forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on MindShifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic Forgiveness please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.